from wallstack.ca. Welcome to the Financial Wellness Podcast Series, where we discuss all kinds of financial principles, concepts, and products. Our aim is to make money matters simple again. Hey there, and welcome to my latest podcast. In this podcast, I'm unpacking the importance of the risk profile that you as a client complete and how the asset manager interpret that into an asset location. And that asset location is probably the most important thing to decide on when you do an application for investment. I hope you enjoyed this fireside chat with me. In the studio today, I have Adrian Saville from um, all the way from South Africa. Adrian, it's great to have you. Uh, Adrian is a portfolio manager and also an academic. He's a guy that I've known for, Adrian, shucks, it's nearly 20 years now already. That's staggering to, yeah, it's quite a number. When I sometimes think about 10 years, it's normally 15 or 20 years. So can't believe it that we've known each other for about 20 years. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks, Vincent. It's great to be with you. And uh, I guess if it's 20 years, it means we've done uh, we've done collectively a couple of crises uh, and enough uh, bull markets and bear markets across asset classes to uh, have uh, have a fair chunk of talking points. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to try to squash it in into... Um, uh, 45 minutes a day. Um, Adrian, just before we start, don't you just want to introduce yourself and give a little bit of background in terms of your, you know, what you've done and what you're busy with at the moment? Sure. Um, well, first, it's great to be with you, Vincent. Thanks for the invitation. Um, per your intro, I, uh, I've been involved in the investment industry since the late 1990s when I started an investment firm. Uh, it's through that that we met each other um, and that investment firm started as an individual uh, uh, wealth manager looking after um, uh, assets of uh, individuals and families and uh, then grew to an institutional manager. Um, uh, In 2017 that firm was sold and uh, spent a couple of years uh, with uh, with the new parent company and then uh, 2021, end of 2021, I joined uh, Genera Capital, which is a multifamily investment office. Uh, alongside my investment career, I've had the good fortune of uh, being able to look after an academic career. And I have a professorship in economics, finance and strategy at the Gordon Institute of Business Science in Johannesburg. And um, you say all the way from South Africa, but I have two things that are Canadian. I have a professorship at Rotman uh, in Toronto, and I have uh, a PR. (laughs) (laughs) A permanent resident. Actually, I should should say I have three things that are Canadian, and I've got a wife that lives in Canada. So I spend... (laughs) (laughs) As long as she doesn't listen to this, I'm safe. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's excellent. So... um, so I think that's the reason why, you know, I, I love talking to you, Adrian, is, you know, both from that practical perspective, but also having a, a um, that academic hat on when we talk about these things today. Mm. And so, um, so I think you, you're perfectly positioned in terms of helping our listeners understand the, the link between asset management on the one side, when we talk about asset classes and strategic asset location that we love to talk about, but on the end client side, it's really about risk profile. So when they um, when they sign up for an investment account, per regulation, they need to complete a risk profile from the portfolio manager or the, the product provider. And mm-hmm. that's the link between what the client sees on the one side, the, the risk profile, 
But um, from the asset management perspective, they translate that risk profile into an asset allocation and um, portfolio management. And so, you know, uh, just for our listeners, that's the stuff that we want to talk about, unpack for you. Um, and um, I've asked Adrian to uh, help me in this process. Adrian, as we jump into this thing, um, just quickly in terms of what is an asset class? So before we go there, Vincent, can I maybe just sort of add to your intro about the importance of uh, this asset allocation is, you know, very often asset allocation comes across as, you know, the dull end of the conversation where we risk profile you and you are called a moderate risk or an assertive or aggressive risk or conservative, you know, and that uh, a couple of words is supposed to capture your investment appetite or your exposure to different asset classes. And we'll talk about the asset classes in a moment. But if we gather up um, the evidence from uh, investment experience, I think that there are two absolutely fundamentally important things in driving investment results. If you can get two things right, they are this. Give yourself as much time as possible Time is one of the most powerful components uh, of investment outcomes because time allows things to compound, it allows you to correct errors, it allows you to double down on successful results. So compounding, uh, which is given to you by time, is this very, very powerful component. And then asset allocation is the different asset classes that you're exposed to over time. Um, and you know, in saying that, it's self-evident that time is the one thing you can't control. You know, <laughs> We've got we've got what we've got left from our starting position. So time is outside of our hands, and that really emphasizes that you should get started as early as possible from uh, in, in any investment journey, the earlier the better. And uh, once you've started that journey or embarking on that journey, it's down to asset allocation. Um, those are the two most powerful components. And asset allocation, which exposes you to different asset classes, will then uh, represent that uh, investment appetite or your, your position on the spectrum of conservative through to aggressive. And different asset classes will give you uh, those different exposures. So an asset class um, is usually captured by you know, a single clear descriptor, equities, bonds, cash, property, commodities, each of those is an asset class. And they have common characteristics, uh, which is why they belong to a class. And you can think of a class as being a school or a collection. So uh, in talking about an asset class, we think of things that have a lot in common. And what they have in common is they're going to have similar structures and similar behaviors. So uh, equities or stocks is an asset class and equities represent ownership in a business. Uh, bonds are an asset class and they represent um, money that's owed to you. So when you buy a bond, you're lending money uh, to another person or cash is money in the bank. Uh, and each of them is going to be influenced or driven by different economic factors, uh, different geographic factors, different political factors, different currency factors. And whilst those factors might be different, they tend to be common to the asset classes at the highest levels. So interest rates will have a particular impact on property prices, economic growth will have a particular impact on equities, and so on. So Adrian, I mean, obviously, some of those more familiar uh, asset classes that people would, 
would normally see in their mutual funds uh, or in their SEC portfolios um, is something like equities and bonds, cash, listed property. I mean, those are hmm. those are the asset classes they would normally see in those mutual funds. What are the other asset classes that are less well known and would um, that are normally in a client's portfolio, but they just maybe don't know about it? Um, and also maybe from a family office perspective that you're involved in, what are those other other asset classes that are you know um, not so familiar to their sure. clients? Okay, so there's um, there's two things that you uh, that I'll add to your observation uh, or two responses to your observation. The first is alongside those traditional asset classes that you know we've just listed. Um, equities, bonds, property, cash. Those are the so-called traditional asset classes. Uh, you'll get other asset classes that are not as conventional. They still might find their way into a portfolio, but they generally won't make up the bulk of a portfolio. And examples of that would be um, venture capital or private equity, uh, commodities, where commodities might represent industrial commodities like copper, um, uh, aluminium, iron ore, might represent agricultural commodities like um, palm oil um, or uh, pork bellies. Uh, and uh, uh, commodities might also represent precious metals uh, like silver, uh, platinum and gold. So each of those would be uh, an example uh, of a, a different or perhaps another word would be alternative uh, asset classes away from the, the traditional. And it's not that by being different or alternative, they are second choices. It's that they just tend to be um, not the first place to go when it comes to asset allocation. Usually the first place people go in asset allocation is to those so-called traditionals of equities, bonds, uh, property and cash. And then we should add the non-traditional or the alternative, which would be uh, venture capital, private equity, commodities, precious metals. Um, and there's loads of others that we could add there. Um, uh, timber mm. uh, uh, you know, or, or land could be uh, an example. The, uh, one of the characteristics that, uh, of that second set of the non-traditional is they uh, very often tend to not be listed, which means they aren't easily tradable or available on public markets. And so it's difficult for you and me in our individual capacity to go and buy them. We need to be taken there by a professional investment uh, uh, office that would help us get access to the private equity or the venture capital. Um, so, and uh, then, uh, sorry, I, I, I said two things. Let me just uh, drop the second one in very quickly. Then inside of each of those asset classes, they tend to be, they are generally subclasses. So for instance, in the case of equities, you might have developed market equities and emerging market equities, or you might have large cap equities and mid cap equities. Inside of bonds, you could have nominal bonds or inflation linked bonds. So it quickly starts to become you know, more complicated or detailed, sophisticated as we start to dig into each of these asset classes. So Adrian, are you, um, would you agree that um, the difference between a client with a smaller portfolio and a client with a bigger portfolio um, is sometimes this difference that the bigger the portfolio is, the more choice they have. Um, so, 
So as the portfolio increases, you then have the ability to access, like, as you say, venture capital, um, private equity, some other stuff which which you can't normally find in a mutual fund. Um, and so mm-hmm. there's maybe a different risk return profile for that type of client with with more choice. Um, yeah, because that, that choice gives you optionality. It allows you to add different things into the basket, which wouldn't be accessible through smaller investment amounts. Now, you know, how much uh, is required to get you into those uh, different opportunities is a function of a couple of things. It's a function of the market you're working in. So if you're working in um, uh, a developed market, an advanced market where individual incomes and individual balance sheets are much bigger than emerging markets, you will probably find that you require larger amounts of capital um, to get access to those uh, other opportunities. The, uh, the, the, the second um, aspect, so, so first, you know, it's the, it's the market that you're working in. And second, it's the asset class that you're working in. Um, so, you know, in the case of equities, uh, you tend to have far more optionality than in the case of perhaps venture capital or private equity. So, you know, this, this is, uh, I guess, a it depends answer. Uh, to give you the economics answer. It very much depends on the market you're in, but you're absolutely right. Larger amounts of capital generally give you more options and greater access. And so what we found in, um, especially in the, you know, Canada and, and other, um, I want to say first world markets is that the whole um, access to private property uh, obviously is a has been a big winner the last 20 years. And so when you look at, at uh, private clients' uh, portfolios, there's a big portion of their wealth that goes into um, private property, which is one of those asset classes. But what mm. I guess what we often find is that um, that uh, that's makes up a, a big portion of their total portfolio. And obviously there's some risk to that um, in case of, of you know, high interest rates and those valuations coming down for those clients. Just to you know, add to that, if um, uh, if you if you take private property as uh, as a case in point, private property I would describe as an asset class. Um, it has unique characteristics and different drivers to other asset classes. So, and one of the private property assets that we understand best is our home. (laughs) And it tends to be the case that uh, the bulk of our assets is usually allocated to our home. Um, And I've recently become a Canadian uh, property owner uh, with my wife and based on Canadian property prices, uh, that this makes up now a very large part of my balance sheet. So, (laughs) you know, uh, know, that's a good way of thinking about an asset class is what's going to influence the price of your home. It's going to be the performance of the Canadian economy. It's going to be uh, interest rates in Canada. It's going to be inflation rates. Uh, and then you might have specific drivers like what uh, city are you living in, uh, what uh, province are you in, uh, and then what suburb are you in. But broadly speaking, you would expect Canadian property prices to move sympathetically, that they generally move in the same direction. And that's what we would call asset class behavior. Adrian, just before we jump onto the, onto the next one, just, um, you know, let's just quickly compare equity, listed equity versus private equity. 
Um, mm. You know, we can also compare, let's say, bonds with private debt, for example. Uh, but let's just quickly think about equities, uh, listed equities, and private and private equity. Um, you know, there's there's components there in terms of how many equity holdings you have in a portfolio and how many private equity holdings you have in a portfolio. Uh, you talked about liquidity and uh, illiquidity in the private equity. Maybe just kind of jump into that quickly mm -hmm. just to give the listeners a, a perspective in terms of if we talk about listed equity versus private equity, what, what the differences are. Sure. One of the, uh, perhaps it's worth just uh, giving some context to why private equity has become such a popular asset class as this has really been you know, brought to the front by the likes of uh, the, the Yale and Harvard endowments where uh, David Swenson was the, uh, the, the chief investment officer at the Yale fund and at the Yale endowment and produced a return uh, in the order of 16% per year over 30 years, an absolutely extraordinary number by any measure. And one of the big drivers of this return was uh, private equity. So the distinction between public equity and private equity, public equity is the stuff that we talk about every day. It's the things listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange, London Stock Exchange, New York Stock Exchange, um, Tesla, Microsoft, LVMH. Uh, these are uh, you know, Alibaba, uh, Tencent. These are the companies listed on public exchanges. Uh, they are uh, universally accessible. You and I can buy them, and you know we buy them uh, in open transactions. They generally are relatively easy to buy, relatively easy to sell, and you can buy and sell them with fairly modest amounts of money. A couple of hundred dollars will allow you to buy a position in any one of these companies. Uh, that means that not only are they accessible, but they're also liquid. If we change our mind on Microsoft, this morning, uh, we can sell it this afternoon. That's the liquidity. We may not get the price that we want, but we can get out of the investment. Or if we like it uh, this morning, we can have it in our portfolio by this afternoon. That's a public market. A private market is um, argued to be attractive for a couple of reasons. The first is uh, that it brings unique opportunities that are generally that are generally not available but they're available specifically to you or to a small set of people. And in this way, you can invest in a company that isn't publicly listed, but it is open to private investments. Uh, and those private investments have the characteristic not only of being available to a smaller set of people, and so having a unique component that if just a small set of us can own it, most can't. So that's a very powerful attribute in, that, in its uniqueness. Uh, it has the capacity to behave differently than, than other things. But this, the, the second aspect of private equity, as much as that uniqueness is a very powerful component, the second aspect is because it's private, it tends to require larger amounts of capital to get in. Uh, usually hundreds of thousands or sometimes even millions of dollars uh, for it to be made available. And the second aspect is not only is the hurdle higher, but the time horizon is much longer. If you want to get out of it this afternoon, you can't. Uh, you are invested in it for a holding period of the, of, of, of the life of the, uh, of the private equity fund, which characteristically is five, seven, sometimes even more years. It's not to say you can never get out of it. There is a secondary market. You can always find a buyer, but that yeah. buyer will require time, paperwork, administration. 
So there's obviously um, more risk involved in the private equity. Th th thanks for bringing up the, the Yale Endowment. So, f so for the listeners, you know, they would be most familiar with like a balance fund um, in some sort of format, you know, balance fund in a mutual fund or balance fund that they can uh, choose to invest in through their uh, defined contribution pension fund at home, at work, for example, or the RSPs. Let's just quickly um, give us just a sense here in terms of the differences between a normal traditional balance fund and a portfolio which is more set up like the Yale Endowment, where we see a lot more smart money has moved to, you know, where there's some thinking in terms of changing that asset allocation. What are those two different ways of managing that same type of return outlook, but with different asset classes? If you if you take the well, uh, let me start again. Uh, the, the the famous or perhaps now infamous uh, balanced fund is what we would call a 60/40 portfolio or a 70/30 portfolio, and the 60/40 or 70/30 refers to your asset allocation to equities and bonds. 70% equities, 30% bonds. The equities are supposed to be assertive or aggressive, and the bonds are supposed to be conservative and uh, provide insurance or protection. So if you've got 70-30, it's slightly more aggressive than a 60-40. Um, David Swenson's uh, objection to this approach was that um, you had your eggs uh, in two baskets, <laughs> uh, which is better than having your eggs in one basket, but you've got your eggs in two baskets, equities and bonds. And he, he added another complaint, and that was that in his observation about the 70-30 portfolio, 60-40 portfolio, is it tended to be, he's making the observation in the US context, it tended to be very much a US dollar investment. So we're going to invest 70% equities, 30% bonds, and it'll be U.S. companies and U.S. government bonds. And uh, so David Swenson said uh, there's, there are some very easy, almost self-evident things that you could do that will help you to diversify away from this without giving up the return component. And so what diversification does, more than gathering up extra returns, the first thing that it does is it manages risk. And in the language of investing then is you get a free lunch. Because if I can get the same returns with less risk, I've just got a free lunch. Um, and uh, so Swenson suggested that there were you know, a handful of asset classes that you should allocate away from uh, your 60 or 40, 70, 30 portfolio. Uh, the first suggestion was you should take your US equities and allocate some of those US equities to um, uh, to developed market equities, European equities, Japanese equities, Australian equities, uh, Canadian equities. The second uh, would be that you allocate some of your US, another pocket of your US equities to emerging market equities, where you would get uh, India, Brazil, um, Indonesia, the Philippines. So the equities could be put into other uh, subcomponents. He made a similar suggestion with bonds, that the bonds that most 60, 40, 70, 30 portfolios hold are so-called nominal US government bonds. Perhaps you should be allocating some of those bonds to inflation-protected bonds, which has the same um, attribute of bonds in that they are government-guaranteed, 
but they have a diff different element or a different driver that they are guaranteed to protect against inflation also. And so your nominal bonds would then be complemented or diversified away into nominal bonds. And then his further suggestion was that you should put in these private asset classes like private equity, where you could get uh, a little bit of zip or zing in your portfolio because mm. through the private equity, you might be locked up for five years, um, but uh, locked up in a good sense, <laughs> uh, but you would get this very powerful private equity return driver. Um, and in that way, you would actually build a portfolio that was more diversified than your traditional portfolio, and you hadn't given up any of your return components. And then he went on to deliver this, you know, with this incredible investment result. Um, if I've become animated at this point, um, it's because this is, you know, something we fundamentally, intrinsically believe in, uh, in, 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 in our, my firm, Genera Capital. Um, uh, where uh, this is exactly the way in which we construct portfolios with some slightly uh, with some, some ad additional diversifiers, including uh, precious metals and commodities, which David Swenson did not give as much um, uh, uh, recognition or emphasis to. Adrian, so traditionally also the definition of risk in portfolio management language is normally volatility. Mm. You know, in terms of how the portfolio moves up and down through a period of time. Mm. Now, there's also another way of defining risk, and that's the risk of losing capital. So, you know, which I yeah. I normally kind of think is better because if I have volatility and the market goes up, I like that volatility because I want my portfolio to go up. The time that I don't like volatility is when it comes down, and so mm. that is defining that that risk in terms of the risk of losing money uh, and not just about up or down because as you would know when you speak to clients very few of your clients will come back to you and say oh my portfolio is too volatile it went up too much you know they normally don't <laughs> people don't complain when them when your portfolio go up too much uh, mm -hmm. it's more when the portfolio goes down that that uh, that pain kicks in in your kind of sense um what is your what is your view on on the definition of risk when it comes to portfolio management and uh, how do you translate that over to clients? Sure, this is a massive topic and uh, in the space of a podcast, uh, let me try and do justice to it. So the, I, I, I agree with you, the way that risk generally is spoken about is volatility. And the volatility, because people understand that things go up, things go down. The more they bump up and down, the, you know, the argument would be, well, that's a much more volatile portfolio, and therefore it's uh, it's riskier. Um, but as you've pointed out, upside volatility is lovely volatility. It's really downside volatility that uh, people are scared of, or that causes. Um, uh, 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 perverse behaviors that in downside volatility, that's when people sell or panic. Um, uh, that doesn't dismiss upside volatility. Upside volatility, people can often become greedy um, and can become too aggressive. So volatility, um, although it's presented as a proxy for risk, um, is, I, I would argue, is nothing more than bumpiness. And very often that bumpiness is um, a, it, it, it creates bad behavior um, uh, or perverse behavior. So, uh, you know, that's just to recognize that 
that's one way of thinking about volatility. Another way of thinking about risk, so, sorry, uh, let, me, and let me just side pocket volatility for the moment and come back to your um, immediate question about risk. Um, and uh, uh, r risk is risk is the is the is the likelihood that you don't get to your outcome um, uh, that you plan for years and years and years and you invest and you imagine that you get to a destination and eventually you know as the moment arrives of let's call it your retirement that's the most obvious destination uh, you find that you haven't done the necessary things and you you you, you don't have sufficient capital mm. Now, you could have managed all of your volatility on the way. I have a former colleague who says, you know, in your retirement, you can't eat risk. Um, you know, you can only eat return. So, so, so there is a risk here that we cannot lose sight of. And that is the risk that you, you arrive at a place other than what you imagined. And it's the wrong place. This is a very, very real risk. On the way to that, there is an even greater danger, uh, and you, you, you referenced it, that's permanent destruction of capital. And permanent destruction of capital is uh, a circumstance where uh, you, you put 100 in and you land up with zero. Now, no amount of subsequent brilliance can compound zero. You know, a gazillion percent times zero is zero. Uh, uh, we've got all this way in an investment conversation. I don't think we've said Buffett, but you know, Buffett says there's um, uh, you know there's two rules of investing. The first rule is don't lose money, and the second rule is never forget the first rule. Uh, you know what he's talking about is the risk of permanent destruction of capital. Now volatility is bumpiness, and that means your 100 might become 90. But it's permanent destruction of capital when that 90, when the, when the minus 10 is gone forever and you can never recover it. Volatility is very different. It says, I've got 100, it falls to 90, but the intrinsic value of the asset is such that it's worth 110, 120. And if I allow economic forces, industrial forces and time uh, into the equation, I will realize that 120, 130 in the fullness of time. So intrinsic value is a very important part of this conversation and gives us a lens on risk. So, um, no, thanks for that. So, um, so as we can see, I mean, with in portfolio management, it's um, those two drivers, you know, when we manage portfolios is the one, what is the return profile for the client? And how do we deliver that return profile with the least amount of risk and whatever the specific definition that the portfolio manager will attach to that to that um, to that risk. Um, Adrian, just before we move on the link between um, the asset management and the risk profile, which I want to get to, just quickly, if we just kind of circle back very quickly to the Yale endowment versus a traditional balance fund, uh, you talked about that that 60/40 or 70/30 split of a balance fund. Just for the listeners on the Yale endowment, you know, I know that it's moved quite a bit this last few years, but what is your, what do you think is kind of the rule of thumb that they do as a location now to, um, to say, you know, this is how much I want to put in equities, private equity, debt, private debt, and all these kind of things. What is, what is the rule of thumb there from a listed, unlisted growth versus income kind of asset classes? 
Well, you know, what, what they did in that endowment is they stepped a long way away from the traditional approach, which, as you've uh, you know, noted, is 60 or 70 percent into equities. They still kept that 60 or 70 in equities, but um, they carved it up into subcomponents. And those subcomponents were, you know, 15 percent in uh, developed market equities, another 15 percent in emerging market equities, uh, another 15 percent in private equity or venture capital, um, and then you know the the rest or the starting position in your U.S. equities. So although it still had that, you know, very large equity component. Uh, the division into subcomponents gave it a very, very different uh, 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 risk profile. The, it's worth pausing here also for a moment just to, you know, acknowledge that, or, to, or, or, or uh, yeah, to acknowledge that, you know, Swenson said that in thinking about investment returns, there's really three uh, core drivers um, in your allocation. The first is your asset allocation. Uh, the second is your uh, is the is the individual investments, your, your stock selection that you allocate the asset to, and then your market timing. I go in and out of uh, the investment, and you know having made that observation, he then went on to uh, make a very important further observation that you know of those three things: asset allocation, stock selection, and market timing. Uh, the market timing and the stock selection are actually zero-sum games. That the only way you win is by someone else losing. And if it's a zero-sum game, then for you to be doing market timing or stock selection, it essentially is an expression that, well, I am generally going to be right if it's a zero-sum game. Because for you to win, someone else loses. So you're really backing yourself on stock selection and market timing. And having made the observation that not only are these zero-sum games, uh, uh, which puts you on on a fool's errand, you then uh, have to add costs into the equation, Mm. which makes the the loss for for, for the aggregate a guarantee that collectively we must lose when we are doing market timing and stock selection. Uh, It cannot be a win-win outcome. And for that reason, uh, Swenson and the Yale Endowment, Harvard Endowment, really, you know, rewind all the way to asset allocation as being the fundamental principle, um, uh, the fundamental point of departure in portfolio construction and risk management. That That's perfect. So I do want to encourage clients that when they invest into a portfolio is to go and find that fact sheet or disclosure document and try to understand where the portfolio is invested in. Um, there's normally good indication in terms of, you know, whether it's a 70-30 portfolio or 60-40 or 90-10, whatever that is, but also try to understand how much of that portfolio is in, is in uh, unlisted entities, just to kind of give you a sense in terms of uh, where the risk will be. Edwin, so if we move, you know, um, we talked a, a lot about the back office of asset management now. And, and to kind of give um, um, the end client a little bit of a peak, you know, view of, of what we talk about on the portfolio management level. The, the way that that world is linked to um, a client purchasing a product is the link there is the risk profile. <laughs> so mm-hmm. what normally happens is 
you um, give advice to a client or they want to purchase an uh, investment product and the first thing that the product provider would ask the client to do is to complete a risk profile. And the risk profile then links it back somehow to the right portfolio. Um, would you maybe just give us a sense in terms of what is that risk profile and uh, just how we link that to the portfolio? You know, what goes normally into that risk profile questionnaire, if I can say that? Um, and it's not uniform. I mean, different companies have different sure. questions that they, that they ask. But what is, what is how, how, how do we bring those end client experience uh, in line with the back office? So what, you know, what risk profiling is trying to do is it's trying to figure out um, what your psychology is. Uh, if you have got an appetite for volatility or the ability to tolerate volatility, um, because one of the, I think one of the most difficult or even dangerous things that can happen um, is uh, a response or an observation along the lines of, well, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, you've put me into something that I didn't expect. Um, so we're trying to work out that aspect of what is your, uh, what's your mindset, what's your risk tolerance, um, how are you going to respond? You know, few, few people uh, um, are going to object to good times, <laughs> you know, so they'll, they'll object to bad times. How are you going to behave under those stressed circumstances or, or how are you going to respond under those stressed circumstances? That's one of the things that we're trying to work out. Um, we're also trying to work out your time horizon. Are you investing for a year, for three years, for 50 years? Uh, Yale Endowment has been around for 300 years. Uh, and you know, by their planning, they're going to be around for 300 more. Um, whereas you and I don't have that time horizon. Um, and a person who's in their 20s has got a very different time horizon to a person who's in their 50s. So you know, we're trying to work out time horizon. Um, we're also trying to work out, you know, specific or idiosyncratic needs. Uh, you might live in Canada, but you regard yourself as a global citizen, that the way that you measure your well-offness, your wealth, financial wealth, is by a global benchmark, perhaps a US dollar. Um, uh, you might live in Australia and have an ambition to eventually retire in Brazil. So, you know, we shouldn't be measuring your returns then by Australian dollar. We should be thinking of them in terms of what they would buy in the Brazilian reais. Uh, so what's your currency of reference? Um, and then how many people are relying on this outcome? Uh, is it uh, just, you know, the individual that you're speaking to? Is it the individual and a significant other? Uh, are there further dependents? Um, uh, do they have investment intentions beyond just looking after themselves so do they have legacy assets for instance um, so there's a whole range of different things that we're trying to figure out uh, in a conversation um, uh, uh, with an individual about their risk appetite um, so that we can figure out the currency the time horizons their appetite for volatility their ability or willingness to put different asset classes into a portfolio and so on so obviously, that's uh, the the feel for the end client is different. Speaking to a portfolio manager where they have a direct relationship with, 
because that portfolio manager can, as you just rightly said, can ask those detailed questions exactly about, um, you know, translating their risk profile into the correct portfolio. When it mm. comes to, um, I would, you know, just clients that are purchasing a investment product, they would normally just complete a risk profile questionnaire that's on paper or online. And that company might issue like, let's say eight or 10 questions. So I, I do just think that, you know, clients should just, you know, take special reference and just make sure that they answer those questions. Uh, there's no wrong answer. <laughs> it's just yeah. answer the questions the best you can in terms of in terms of who you are and what your expectations are for this portfolio, um, so that um, uh, so that you just know that the product provider brings the right product to you based on your risk profile. That was just more of a comment. So, um, Adrian, let's just talk quickly. You know, for those clients that aren't able to go to a portfolio manager like you, you know, where they complete those those questionnaires online or on paper, the risk profile um, for, let's say, a home deposit or education goal should be different to the risk profile of a retirement goal, as you rightly said, you know, the, the time horizon for those two kind of things are different. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't have the time to make up a loss in a home deposit goal um, so, <laughs> uh, compared to a retirement goal. So, um, so I do want to just talk about that a little bit and also um, get your feel on that, but also encourage the end client that when they complete those risk profiles to have that specific goal in mind when they complete the risk profile for that goal. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, that when you complete the risk profile for, let's say, a home deposit, as we rightly said, think about that goal. Um, you're not supposed to think about retirement in that sense because otherwise you, they're going to serve up the wrong account for you or wrong portfolio for you. Um, Adrian, yeah, maybe just talk into into those types of uh, risk profile asset locations. Let's talk about the type of products that clients might normally find with those different risk profiles or different goals, I should say. Sure. Uh, so, Vincent, if you, you know, if I, if I, if I've got money, you know, we talk here about, you know, f- 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 mental accounting for financial pockets, and mental accounting might be, um, I've got, you know, a hundred available for investment, but of that 100, 20 uh, is for um, a university fund for my daughter, and 80 is for my retirement. And if 20 is for the university fund for my daughter, and she's going to university in two years time, then I can't afford to have that in a high volatility uh, portfolio because although the high volatility should, and I really want to underline the word should, (laughs) or the higher volatility should reward me with higher returns, it could be that the moment I need those university fees, I'm in a period of down volatility. Um, and I then go to the portfolio and the cupboard is bare. So we need to be you know, very careful about you know, allocating money that is you know, rainy day money or necessity money uh, and putting it into pockets that are not well suited to the time horizon. And to, to, to caricature it, if, you know, if I was going to live for 100 years, um, or retire in 100 years time, then I can put it into private equity and venture capital. But if I'm going to retire in two years time, 
I probably shouldn't be in private equity and venture capital because the moment I go and try and pull some money out of that investment portfolio, they're going to tell me it's not available. Um, or it's a very bad time for private equity and venture capital and they've just marked the prices down. So I can have my money, but it's down 20%. And so instead, you know, if it's two-year retirement, you want to be arguably in a far more defensive uh, position, keeping in mind that uh, life expectancies have changed dramatically. Um, and you, I mean, you didn't raise this point, but I'll drop it into the uh, into the hat that if we rewind to the 1970s, life expectancy was uh, mid-60s to late-60s. Life expectancy today is um, early 80s to mid-80s. So advances in medicine, science, technology means that people are living for a lot, lot longer, except their retirement ages are the same. Um, and I think that brings about an, a, a completely different set of risks and needs for people looking after assets in retirement and planning for retirement. You, Adrian, thank you so much. You know what? Um, I think there's another podcast coming, especially around life expectancy and mm -hmm. defined benefit plans, especially in Canada, mm -hmm. where so many people um, uh, do have defined benefit plans. Um, and, um, and the ones that don't have it, they are really, um, um, you know, they have that longevity liability on the balance sheet that they need to make sure that they can cover over the long term. Yeah. Um, Adrian, thank you so much. Uh, you know, we can keep on talking about risk profile. Uh, we can keep on talking about asset location. I, I hope this gives the listeners a good feel in terms of where that match is between back office and the portfolio that they want to select. Um, maybe just a last final thought from your side. You know, when, when we think about um, the portfolio, when we think about risk, uh, risk profile, what is the one final thing that you would like to just uh, maybe just speak to the listeners that are uh, maybe not that uh, investment savvy, that want to know more about investments? Um, because I often say to clients, you know, no one will look after your money as well as you are. Uh, and so what is that one thing that you would leave with your uh, with the audience? Um, you've asked me for one, I'm going to give you two. <laughs> the first <laughs> is, you, you made a comment earlier about when you fill out a risk, uh, a risk profile, um, uh, risk questionnaire, um, you know, there's no right answer. I think, you know, very often uh, in the world of investing, people are intimidated, people are um, fearful. It's an industry that's filled with specialist language. Um, and for that reason, uh, oftentimes people sort of shy away from these conversations because they feel awkward or difficult. Um, this is a conversation you have to have. Um, and in having that conversation, I would agree with you. There's no right or wrong answer. There's only you know, here are the facts. So I'm going to tell you the facts about my risk profile, because if I try and give you an answer that I think you want to hear, you're going to build the wrong risk profile and I'm going to land up in the wrong place, which means we're now in the world of luck. Um, the second thing is that uh, I've said it before, but I'd really like to underline it is the suggestion uh, is that there's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, if we go to the, the, the textbooks. 
Um, and I would challenge that. In the world of investing, there is such a thing as a free lunch, and that comes in the form of diversification. Diversification is about being in the right asset classes that are appropriate to your profile. It tends to be the it's not the talked about part of an investment portfolio. The talked about part of an investment portfolio is what have interest rates done, what has currency done, or what has the stock market done, or an individual stock uh, done. Um, uh, you know, what's your um, uh, what's your um, mining company or bank stock done in the portfolio? What's the Tesla um, share price done? These are interesting components, but they I, I would argue that they, they're not the most important components. The single most important thing in your investment decision is getting asset allocation right to suit your horizon, your risk profile, and your investment needs. This is the single thing uh, that should be at the center of your focus, and it is the freest lunch available in investing. Adrian, thank you so much. Um, it was great talking to you. Thank you, thank you. always for your insight um, and to make things really simple for clients. I, I think there's a ton of things that they can that they can dive into and kind of listen to. Just as a final thing, you know, um, Adrian also mentioned it about this men mental accounting and mental bucketing of, of, of accounts into different places. Go and check out wellstack.ca if you haven't done so yet. Um, you know, we've specifically created that, that uh, platform for people to um, create goals for themselves, create those different investment accounts or different investment goals, and then link those specific accounts to those goals and to make sure that those accounts um, have the correct asset location that speaks directly into that, uh, into that goal so that you're not surprised uh, with a different outcome in the future. Adrian, thank you so much. All the best, and Thank I'm looking you. forward to um, having you in Toronto and having a good cup of coffee. <laughs> thanks for a great conversation, and thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. You can find our content on wallstack.ca or on LinkedIn. I'm Vincent Hayes, and you've been listening to the Financial Wellness Podcast Series. 